Hello and welcome to the FreightFind podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Christopher Mims, Technology Columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I've been a fan of Christopher's technology and keywords columns in the journal for several years now. He has a wide view of technology and a really great perspective on how technology can impact people, companies, and industries. In 2021, he published a book called Arriving Today that traces a shipment of USB chargers across the world from Vietnam to Minnesota, introducing the reader to the nitty-gritty of global supply chains. In doing so, he also weaves in discussions on the importance of the concept of relativity in global tracking by satellite, the traveling salesman problem, its relevance, and the challenge involved in solving it, the irony that adding automation typically increases rather than decreases the number of employees, and many, many more seemingly unrelated topics that are, in fact, very relevant. I highly recommend the book, especially for someone new to the industry. Christopher does a great job highlighting both the human and technological sides of supply chains. Our discussion ranges widely between supply chains, the impact of regulations on technology on the industry, and everything in between. Following our conversation, I'll be joined by Dr. Inami Yu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the Freight Fine Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I've been reading your articles in the journal for years now, and so I'm really excited to get you on the on the podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you're currently the technology columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and you had a book come out in 2021, which kind of piqued my interest, called Arriving Today. Uh, it follows the journey of a load of USB chargers from a point of manufacture in Vietnam, or point of assembly anyway, to delivery to a customer in Minnesota. Along the way, you followed it on a container ship, ride along with a long-haul trucker, a UPS driver, through Amazon DCs and all this stuff describing the path. And I have a lot of questions. So first one, how do neuroscience and behavioral uh, biology major end up writing about technology at Wall Street Journal? That seems like a stretch in itself. Uh, Necessity. (laughs) I I was a freelance science journalist, had my first kid, and uh, a friend of a friend was working at MIT Technology Review, needed somebody to come in and blog for them back when blogging was relatively new and people wanted more of it. And, uh, you know, I have always had an interest in technology, so I thought I'd give it a shot. And, you know, since then, my career has tracked with the growth of the technology industry. You know, I mean, when I started, uh, you know, there were no tech companies among the world's five or 10 most valuable tech companies because it was post bubble. Um, you know, now obviously that's not the case. So I just continued to pursue that interest and that opportunity. And then one day uh, I got interested in logistics technology and that led me to all of the automation that's happening there. And I just thought, wow, I've heard about the potential of robots yeah. for years, but I've never seen them implemented on this scale and in this way. And so that led me into, you know, the adjacent industry of just logistics in general. Okay. Let's talk about technology because tech can mean so many different things to different people. How do you f- define tech when you're writing um, your articles for the journal? How, what falls in your category and what falls out? Well, I mean, it's a little bit like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. <laughs> you know, my editor in this case knows it when he sees it, when they see it. I have many editors. Um, 
you know, technology is anything that happens on the internet or with a microchip, I think conventionally. But to me personally, you know, technology is any application of tools, even systems. But that's my personal definition. I mean, if I were allowed to follow that to its logical conclusion, I'd probably be writing about all of material culture. But yeah. That's how I look at technology philosophically. But it, well, what's the what's what's the lowest tech tech that you that fast hits that bar? Well, that I'm allowed to write about ends up being you know just anything with a microchip or connects to the internet. Okay. Really, okay. these days it's everything. But personally, and this is why I got interested in logistics. You know, I'm interested in you know everything. Like, what are new alloys that make different types of transportation modalities sure. possible. All of that stuff, all of that material science, you know, all the way down to the chemistry that makes all this possible. Clearly that's technology. And, and yeah. that's what I write about when I have complete freedom too. So what's the most surprising tech or most interesting one that you've covered? You've been writing this for what, six years, seven years? Eight and a half years of the Eight journal. Half, okay. so more than a decade writing about tech, you know, when you take in before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most surprising tech I've ever written about? Oh, geez. You know, well, the, the thing that surprised you, maybe not the most, you know, Star Wars kind of caliber stuff, but that you went in thinking, oh, this might be mildly interesting, but came out being, wow, that is just not what I expected. Well, I, I think it was the, the, the robotics that have gone into logistics. I mean, we, this whole thing that we take for granted, that you can click a button and get something delivered the same day. You know, in my book, I say this is the single most complicated endeavor human beings have ever undertaken because the supply chains are so long. They span half the globe. They involve so much software, so many sophisticated algorithms, so much automation. You know, the pinnacle of every transportation technology we've ever invented, you know, from the the sort of undervalued 18-wheel truck to, you know, the latest uh, shipping container ships. Um, that really just shocked me when I realized everything that went into enabling, you know, a company like Amazon, I just, I couldn't believe that that was a story that hadn't already been told in full, which is why I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. What, what's funny is, um, Pete, there are other books that trace supply chains to something. I, I, I think uh, one of the ones I read a, a while ago was the story, history of a t-shirt. Have you That's read that one? traces it all the way through. There's some of those, but what I like about yours, I'm just going to jump straight to your book, um, is the favorite part is uh, two things. One is you uncover things that most, I have to convince CEOs and CFOs about. Um, one of those is that economies of scale don't exist in long haul trucking, but I love <laughs> your diversions and your digressions. Um, the fact that you dive in and I didn't know that Lillian Gilbreth invented the triangle kitchen. I mean, that you go off in these weird little ta- tangents, uh, why relativity is so important for satellites. I mean, I knew about Einstein. I didn't think about that. Of course you need to have that stuff. Do you, which came first? The diversions and those little stories that you weaved into a story or were you just, it happened to fit in? It really came from my method as a journalist, which, which comes from my origins as an academic, which is that you know, if you want to find the root explanation, you know, it's like uh, Carl Sagan once said, if you want to um, bake an apple pie from scratch, you have to uh, invent the universe. You know, there's always a level of abstraction I think a lot of people are comfortable with, but I'm always like, no, well, okay, so this thing made this other thing possible, but where did that come from? 
Um, and and I think when you when you really you know when you want to look at shipping, for example, well, it's impossible without GPS. Okay, well, how does GPS work? Eventually, it takes you all the way back to Einstein because without relativity, you don't get GPS. I think that's just my origin as like a scientist and a science journalist. You know, my first real media job was Scientific American. I love going all the way back to those first principles. But that's, don't you run into rabbit holes all the time? I mean, when do you know how to come out from one I of those? I do. Well, that's why deadlines are helpful, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes sense. And one of the laws that I hadn't heard before, and you were alluding to this before, I don't, I forget the name of it, where the computers, where and the analogy that you gave was that computers can now beat people playing, grandmasters playing chess, but they can't figure out how to move the pieces. More of X paradox. More so X what you paradox. described was, you know, if you want to play a robot in chess, it, you know, it's not that hard, We've it turns out, for the robot to beat you at chess. It's very, very hard for it to uh, articulate its limbs so it can pick up a piece and move them. And, you know, why is that? It becomes this fascinating question. And the answer to it, frankly, I think, holds the key to, you know, the future of globalization, the fate of Amazon and all of e-commerce, because the, the sort of newfound flexibility that we're able to give robotics is what has enabled, you know, one click checkout and same day delivery. It's what's made that affordable. You know, Mick Mounts, who started Kiva Robotics, which Amazon bought and became Amazon Robotics, he failed the first time. He was at Webvan and Webvan flamed out and, uh, you know, uh, TechBubble 1.0 because the logistics just didn't work. Why didn't the logistics work? Because the robots weren't there yet. The automation was not flexible enough. And what is the base of what makes that so flexible? It's a surprising amount of it is AI and computer vision and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I, I met Mick because he's a uh, MIT grad. And so he's just up the road. And we I met with him a year or two after he was acquired by Amazon. He couldn't talk much at that point. He maybe has a bigger leash these days. Um, but it was fascinating to see how it how it how it came in. And there's uh, MIT Robotics has a history of this. Rodney Brooks, who found one of the founder of uh, iRobot, um, changed the shift away. It's almost uh, the physical nature of things. You know, that's what they can elephants dance. I think was one of his key papers where they hold the challenge is not necessarily the analytical things, but the actual movement of things. that's a challenge because isn't one of the challenges the last frontiers for picking or for anything in a warehouse is the human pick of eaches. That's everything else has pretty much been solved fairly well, but eaches picking is still evolving. It is. It's still it's still really, really hard. And people are tackling it in some ways by simplifying the problem, changing the way that goods are stored in warehouses to make that each pick easier because you know it's going to be a very, very long time until we have something that is as fast, precise, skilled, flexible, dexterous as a human hand attached yeah. to a human brain. I mean, we really are absolute miracles of biological engineering. Uh, and our, you know, the, the fact that it is so, so hard to reproduce those abilities that we have, it, more than anything in my research, just it made me appreciate how incredibly uh, skilled and sophisticated humans are. And that's why we're so difficult to replace. I mean, Elon Musk himself said, it, you know, humans are underrated. That's what he said after he tried to over automate his Tesla right. factory and ended up building Tesla's intents outside the factory because the the, ro the robots couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. But he's still one of the more optimistic people about ro what robots can do. 
right? He's still, for, especially for autonomous driving for that, which is, it's funny, what I found up here at MIT, the per- people who are the closest involved with autonomous driving are the least optimistic. Yes, <laughs> that has been my experience as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are not going to replace uh, drivers behind the wheel soon in most functions. You know, you'll still have people behind the wheel who are assisted by an autonomous system. I mean, Mercedes just got certified for the first level three driving system ever. Obviously, they beat Tesla to that punch. Uh, But you still got to be sitting behind the steering wheel, and there's still a steering wheel there. Yeah, and so up here at MIT in, in CTL, we have something called the Age Lab, and they're looking at autonomous driving for all this, and they map a lot of what people look at and how they deal with this. And it's it's an ongoing challenge. And those, you talk to these guys and it's like, yeah, the human's supposed to suddenly swoop in if something bad is happening. It's just, it it's just doesn't happen. doesn't happen. Yeah, that's, that's a problem that's going to take a very long time to solve. Well, so you dove into the dirty nitty gritty piece end to end, right? Um, and did you actually, you weren't on the ship the whole time. You write in, in kind of uh, first person for some of this. Did you make the trip across the Pacific? No, especially during the pandemic, but just in general for security reasons, it's it's almost impossible to get onto the ships anymore. So, you know, my sort of representative there who I had extensive conversations with was, uh, you know, this guy, Jeff, he goes by Jeff HK, it's his online handle. And, you know, he's made lots of uh, videos about the process. And, you know, frankly, his perspective is better and more valuable than mine. I mean, the same way that like, I didn't go and become a picker in an Amazon warehouse. I interviewed a bunch of them because, you know, he was a third mate. He's done all the different roles on the ship. And so he was really able to talk about, you know, what is the life of a modern sailor like, you know, I mean, in a strange way, it's a lot like office work on the high seas. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's uh, talked to a lot of pilots like this. It's very mundane until a crisis happens. And then it's all of a sudden, everything goes to hell. Yeah, that's when you need the humans on board. Yeah. So what was the biggest surprise? So you went you went from Vietnam, ocean, through the port. You spent a lot of time talking about ports and everything. And then long haul to, especially DC. And that we'll talk about your views of Amazon in a second. Um, what was most surprising to you as you went all the way through this? I think what was most surprising was the, the degree to which humans are remain irreplaceable in so many of these roles. And the companies that succeed are the ones that make the most of humans. So they use automation to make their people more effective, safer. They, you know, some and sometimes they're just making their jobs easier so that they don't burn out. Because one of the sort of ironies here, uh, the sort of second order surprises for me was you know, you would think that as you, the more you automate these kinds of different parts of the supply chain, oh, you're pushing humans out. Humans don't matter as much anymore. Au contraire, the fewer humans you have and the more skilled they are, the more you rely on them. That's why, you know, the the longshoremen's union, you know, on the West Coast and elsewhere has such power. The fewer of them there are operating those highly automated systems, the more they can shut down by just one of them not showing up to work one day. Right. And so, you know, as these become more and more skilled positions, same thing with trucking, you, know, you make truckers more productive, then you're that much more dependent on any one trucker for a particular route. I mean, yeah. trucking is a little different because people churn in and out of that so quickly. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, because for DAT, that's our bread and butter, long haul truckload trucking. Um, 
But what something that struck me as I read your book is for a tech writer, you seem very anti-tech in a lot of places. Did this writing this book change your impression of technology or how it can be used? I wouldn't say I'm anti-tech. I would say I'm pro-human. So technology... But should... when the robot wars happen, when Skynet happens, are you <laughs> going to fight for the robots or the humans? That, that's the question, Christopher. The, the, the cybernetically enhanced humans are going to win that war. <laughs> that's just the way it is. You know, Humans use technology to increase our power over each other, over the natural environment. And, and uh, you, you know, never bet against a cybernetically enhanced human. And by the way, cybernetic enhancement is as simple as the eyeglasses that I'm wearing sure. right now. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's low tech. I wouldn't write an article about that. But yeah, that's, <laughs> that definitely changed things. Actually, there have been some interesting articles about the impact of glasses on spread of, of, of history. I, I've read some other things about that. Innovation. Some of the innovation tech stuff. So your did your did your view of technology change? Did it shift at all as you investigated this, or did you go in with the same human centric view of technology? I, I mean that's that's a keen observation. I think I think that in some ways, seeing firsthand the way that the automation, for example, at Amazon, impacted the lives of those workers, it was you know I could not as a human being help but be affected by that and feel, and especially talking to McNounce who had invented a lot of that automation. And yeah. he's like, oh, this automation can be used to enhance the lives of workers if management uses it properly. And then to see it used both properly and improperly, it really, you know, it was a little bit of an Upton Sinclair, you know, the jungle moment right. where I felt like if I'm going to bear witness to the the lived experience of a lot of these workers, you know, the simple fact is they have real grievances. There's very distinct reasons why they're walking off the job, why a lot of them want to unionize or at least want, you know, more control over their work environment. So, you know, I couldn't avoid the conclusion that, you know, technology, technological progress may be inevitable, but the whether that technology empowers or disempowers any individual at any, you know, level of a of an organization, like that is a that's a question of leverage. Yeah. So, so in the book, you made the point that as the technology improved and using the, the Kiva uh, robotics, which essentially, um, if, if anyone listening doesn't know quite what it is, it's essentially Roombas where they bring the shelf to the pickers. So instead of the picker going and doing the walking, it cuts that out and it brings it to them. And uh, you made the point, which I love making to people, and I use the vacuum analogy, that if you increase the technology and the pr uh, productivity of something, it doesn't mean the work goes down. Our level, our standard that we accept goes up. And I talk about vacuum cleaning. That was supposed to be the thing that freed up the housewife. And suddenly it just raises our level of what is clean. And so yeah. it takes the same amount of time. And you bring the same example for pickers at, at Amazon, that uh, it, it turns them, I, I, I love the observation you made, it turns them into being automated. They have to be robots to keep up with it. They have to keep up with the pace of the automation, which you know, shouldn't surprise anybody who's watched that you know famous scene from that Charlie Chaplin movie or the Lucille Ball scene right. at the end of the assembly line for chocolates and she's stuffing them in her mouth because she gets overwhelmed by the pace of the work. You know, I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as the Industrial Revolution. Um, it is changing, uh, but not because of technology, because of tight labor markets, you know. Amazon revolutionized e-commerce, and now that everyone is doing that, the sort of monster that they have to contend with is 
all of their competitors who are, who are competing for their labor force. And a lot of those competitors are not just offering higher wages. They're offering better working conditions, which technology can be used to enable. Do you think Amazon is the anomaly or are they just the easiest one to, to identify? Because they're so big. They're so massive. It's similar to Walmart was identified and, and, and um, you know, singled out when Target did the exact same things that Walmart did. They just didn't have as they had a better, maybe a better press or marketing department. Is, is, is Amazon anomalous or? They- I don't think they're anomalous. I mean, I saw similar conditions in sortation centers owned by FedEx that were highly automated, but still had to have humans in certain roles where they were, you know, working at the pace of the machine. And it was brutally difficult work. So I don't think they're anomalous at all. But I think that there is a sort of rising tide lifts all boats from the perspective of workers where tight labor markets mean that, you know, some of what I think I described in the book is is, is slowly changing. So, so that wow. fiction might be somewhat anomalous or out of step with where things are going now because these companies don't have a choice. Do you, do you think, and I'm just thinking out loud here, do you think it's a, because the, what we can compare it to has changed when the majority of people were in manufacturing, which was pretty regimented, and then something like that wouldn't seem as bad. But now we have people like you or me, more information workers, right? And we have a very different pace. The The idea that I have to be, I'm going to be tracked every hour is so far removed from what I experience that what that regimented thing seems so strange when in fact that hasn't changed. Yeah. And this is where my optimism about technology comes in. You know, it, it has raised standards of living, you know, throughout history and it has extended our lives. Um, And it has changed the nature of work. And so I think you're absolutely right to identify that, you know, people have a a wider variety of types of jobs available to them. They just have more choice. So so as a result, whether or not they are, you know, organizing, just by virtue of that choice, employers are forced to change what they ask of their employees. And I think you see this in industries where there's really high turnover, where people get into them and they're like, well, this isn't what I was expecting, or this isn't what I can't expect in other industries like trucking. Yeah. No. So here at MIT, we have the same problem. Like when the pandemic finally eased up and then the big question came, how many days do you have to come back to work? We had, you know, the, the people who could work from home, the people, researchers, things like that. There was no reason for them to come in other than socially and things like that. But then the lower end, the staff, their sole reason was to be in at work. So someone running a reception desk has no work from home option. So we found this mixing of things. And I think this happened even more at factories where you have this big disconnect. And so I, I don't know how that gap's going to close because there is there are always jobs where you have to be there and you don't have the luxury of doing, you know, working when when it makes sense to you and having more flexibility. That's a great point. I think remote and flexible work is going to remain for many a, a privilege and a marker of a new kind of class divide, unfortunately. Yeah. You know what? It wasn't... Um, as we talked with people, because MIT is so decentralized, every department, everything did things differently. Um, it was not perceived as a uh, benefit. It was perceived as a right to work from home. It suddenly became that. It was really, really interesting to see. And as I've done these podcasts, some of my early podcasts were in right when the pandemic hit. And I talked to some uh, executives from companies, mainly transportation, freight, those kind of guys. And some of them had never worked from home in their life. They were at the kitchen table and their wife had to explain how to hook things up. It's, it was hilarious. 
And then I talked to these guys a year later and they're like, I, I'm loving it. I'm loving working from home. And suddenly it's become part of the privilege, part of the right. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have this kind of, as biologists say, this acceptation, this pre-adaptation in that all the technologies to re enable remote work for, you know, maybe 40% of the total American workforce, they already existed. But, you know, this is the thing about technology is that the hardest thing to change isn't the tech, it's the people, it's adoption, yeah, it's absolutely. learning. And the pandemic forced this enormous change, which, you know, I mean, just to give you a sneak preview, like I'm so fascinated by this change that I want my next book to be on this change in the culture of remote work and how we're all navigating it. Ah. Because the pandemic, you know, just as it affected logistics, it has been this unprecedented, especially in scale, shift in the nature of work. I really don't think, you know, when you talk to academics who study this, some of whom are at MIT, we haven't seen a change like this since the mass influx of women into the workforce in World War II. That's the last time yeah. we saw in the, in the nature of work this big. That's true, that's true. But you, you talk about the, the technology, I talk about this in different talks that I give, is that the technology is usually the least interesting part of a technological revolution. It's the social acceptance of it. And I still, I think back to um, you know Spotify and how that, uh, no, it's revolutionary, but or MP3, I had a, a was it a Rokio MP3 player? It was about this big, the size of my head, but I could play MP3. I think I could store 25 songs on it. And it was awesome, but it took acceptance of that for that to go. The technology is usually there 10, 15 years before it actually gets changes anything or has any impact. That's true. I mean, I think of it as like, a, as, a, as a, well, others have described it as a ratchet, you know? And, and I mean, you, this, this has been true since like the invention of like wood and stone tools. Like you see it in the... <laughs> almost the archaeological record where it's like, oh, we're going to slightly improve spear throwing with the invention of like the atlatl. And then it's just this ratchet, you know, and we are changed by our technology and then we invent new technologies, which then circle back and change us. Yeah. So let me go back to the writing of the book. And um, one of the things that I don't know, you obviously didn't plan this, but you wrote it during a pandemic, uh, right at the beginning, it kind of weaves in a little bit how much do you think that influenced what you wrote and how you wrote? Did that change the story at all? It did change the story because, you know, maybe a third to even half of the research happened during that initial surge of the pandemic. And that was just such a, it was such a crazy, addling, awe-inspiring experience to be watching, to be writing about the supply chain during a time when it had been tested, perhaps as it has never been tested, except in time right. of war. So it definitely added a great deal of urgency, but it was also just incredible to walk into facilities, ride along with a UPS truck driver during the pandemic, during the time yeah. of absolute, you know, beyond peak utilization of that system and to see the ways that, first off, it adapted, which were amazing, but also in the ways that it was really strained. Yeah. No, it's it, it's funny how that happened. And and one of the things that you, you point out or one of the things that I observed during that time is we, we you don't know where it's going to go. Now, you're writing after the fact this came out in 21. So you saw how it went. But at the time, I remember thinking in March of 2020, when the world stopped, that I still had plans to visit Europe in July. And I thought, ah, they'd be over by then. And I yeah. think there was a lot of that thought up until I don't know. When did you find the, the point where you oh, wow, this stuff is real. And it's going to be longer term, more than just an inconvenience for a couple weeks, months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I, I think like a lot of us probably like six months into it or so, 
it just became yeah. apparent to anybody who was paying attention to what epidemiologists are saying. I mean, people forget this or didn't know at the time or weren't paying attention. But, you know, like, again, like I, my roots are as a science journalist. So I was reading those early, early missives in places like Nature, the journal Nature, where people were talking about, hey, guess what? Uh, we're pretty sure this is going to become another endemic virus like flu and coronaviruses before it. And so very early on, just in my reading of that, I just thought, wow, this is truly not going anywhere. And we are sort of witnessing a, uh, a, a once in a, a century, maybe once in a millennium episode where the human species is acquiring and adapting to a new endemic virus. I mean, I don't know when the last time that happened was, but like, that's a really astonishing thing to think about. Yeah. You know why the reason I think a lot of us discount that is there's a famous quote, I'm thinking who said it, about economists have picked, what, 10 of the last five recessions? Well, you can same say the same thing about the uh, you know epidemics because we had you know SARS was there and then it really didn't have an impact. So you hear these things and they don't happen. You know, there's a lot of crying of wolf, at least from a, a layman's perspective. So you never know when to take it seriously. It's true. It's true. You really don't. And 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 I think that I'm more of like a uh, uh, I don't want to say a cynic, but like I, I definitely sort of tend toward examining the the downside of any particular development. And so there's certainly ones that I have predicted were going to have a big impact in the past that did not. But, you know, when something like this comes along, you want those kind yeah. of, as they say in finance, the sell side analysts who are like, here's why you should sell this company or the world economy or humanity's uh, total immunity short, uh, because this is for real. Yeah. Everyone is is very sensitive to it now with the next pandemic because we tend to think we have all the recency bias and everything. But let me shift the conversation and talk about trucking. Um, so you actually rode in a truck. This one sounds you're actually in the cab and yeah. you have a great quote um, that I can't repeat because this is a family podcast about how terrifying you found it initially. Well, yeah, we drove it during an ice storm. It was it was like a perfect set piece. <laughs> Um, yeah, being in a truck that's hauling, I mean, I don't think he was fully loaded. It was, it was probably closer to like 60,000 pounds total weight or something. Um, but doing that under some of the worst circumstances on these narrow roads in upstate New York like that, it's definitely an education in, in uh, uh, you know, what what can go wrong. I mean, anybody who just saw the images that just came out of, I forget where it was, the, that highway in middle America where there was a huge snowstorm and a massive, right. massive pileup. I mean, you know, one truck goes wrong on a highway and the chain reaction that results under really adverse weather conditions is it's just astonishingly bad. I mean, it's a great example of why it's real hard to get humans out of the cab. But it sounded like in, in your text, and I'm curious if you agree with this, that you respected the driver's skills for driving and the, the, the amount of skill it takes to drive a truck. It's not just like a big car. Yeah, I think any driver who has been driving long enough to get one of these uh, uh, better gigs where mm -hmm. they're driving a regular route for Walmart and their salary, let's say, or they're making a lot of, uh, you know, decent income on that driving their own rig or whatever, or they're, or they've got, you know, the licensing to, to drive hazardous materials. That is a really, really skilled individual because it means they made it through all those early years of being a trucker where it's real easy to, in a split second, mess up especially under circumstances where, you know, look, these drivers are all not sleeping enough. You know, there's tons of research on how that's the equivalent of being drunk. 
Um, so to do a job that is that mentally taxing and physically demanding when the circumstances are adverse, uh, you know, like it does, it takes a special kind of person and you got to respect that. Yeah. Now I, I did a drive along with some guys from Schneider who were doing just hauling containers from, you know, it's the rubber mile for intermodal connections and you haven't lived till you've seen someone back in a 53 foot trailer <laughs> between two other ones with two feet on a foot on either side and have a conversation the whole time. And I'm like, Oh no, my God, we're going to die. And that's I, the most common reason people fail their CDMA professional driver's test. They cannot back up a trailer, the mental trigonometry you've got to do. It's just, I, I just, I'm so in awe. Now has this changed the way when you drive down a highway and you approach truckers? hundred percent. Never, never. I mean, the reason that trucker, if they're good is maintaining, you know, uh, at least a couple hundred feet of distance between them and the next vehicle in front of them is that's what they need for their stopping distance. And you should never yeah. enter it. Nor yeah, should you ever let... spend any time in their blind spot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it gives you a new respect. One of the things you described, um, cause he's more of an owner operator. Actually, he worked for a, a small fleet, like six, 10 trucks. I, I think yeah, you said small fleet. you described the technology available to them in terms of it. And that's something that's actually relatively recent. Um, prior to this, I had the, uh, president of the OIDA, Owner Operators Independent Drivers Association on, and he talked about being a driver in the 70s. And he said, the first stop you do in a city is the truck stop nearest. So he'd look at the map that's in there to see where the thing is. And now, you know, you've got mapping tools, you've got all, all these different things for navigation, for other things. Do you think that's changed the job? Do you think that has the same impact of technology that had in the uh, picking and warehouse lines that you described for the Amazon DCs, or do you think it's enabled them more? Are they more robots or is it empowering? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I mean, the ability to just automatically remap to any location on your GPS is great. The ability to search Google maps for reviews of various places to park your truck and places to drop off your load. That's huge. Um, you know, Google maps is kind of a secret social network for truckers. Right? Yeah, you yeah. Realize that. Uh, but the systems that are federally mandated that control how long people can be on the road, that, of course, has had a tremendous, I think so far, negative impact. I mean, the intentions there were good, were to keep truckers from driving too long and being exhausted and getting into accidents. But the rules are so rigid and, you know, trucking kind of just doesn't, isn't really compatible with really rigid rules because, you know, nobody can control traffic and other things like that. It ends up forcing truckers to, you know, when they could go two more miles to be in a decent place to sleep at night, the, 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 the tracking system mandated by the feds literally won't let them. Uh, so I think it's actually kind of a tragic example of how, you know, regulations with good intentions can really go awry and, uh, and should be treated uh, more provisionally. Like the way software companies roll out something they test, you know, the agile development, and then they iterate and they test and they iterate. It really would be great if we had a model of regulation that worked more like that. And I think we're going to need to adopt it someday if we're going to adapt to the faster pace of technology. Yeah, that's uh, two, a lot of things you wrapped up in there. Let me, one thing uh, that you mentioned. So what you're mainly talking about is the ELDs, electronic logging devices uh, being there as opposed to using books and things like that. Um and that, that did it improve safety? Because that's why it was put in there. The oh, whole idea for that. It has not. Yeah. Alex Scott out of University of Tennessee has written about this extensively and looked at this. 
and you know has it has a the adoption has improved right and so we have better data out there so us people who like to analyze data it's awesome but it has not improved retention it has not improved safety it's really failing at all the things that were sold to have it go through and so the question is was it really something pushed by the larger trucking companies against the, some of the smaller ones it's an open question i think that there's an element of that i mean you know big tech companies all the time push for new regulations that create sure. a moat where it's harder for competitors to come absolutely. in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the, the other, but one of the funny things is because the, the view that I have of truck drivers a lot is uh, I grew up in the seventies, right? And so smoking the bandit, you know, all this kind of stuff, that radical guy, he has an orangutan, right? Clinics with all that. It's yeah. great stuff. Um, but that's not the driver today. The driver today is a curmudgeon, absolute curmudgeon. If you're going to spend 10 hours by yourself, you know, that's there, but they tend to be more tech savvy than people recognize. Um, and so one of the technologies that you didn't mention in the book, um, but has come out now in the last five to 10 years, something DAT does and other companies do, you have a view of the market in your hand. And so mobile apps that have load boards and, and things like that, it's kind of changed the dynamic between a driver and the carry the dispatcher. Um, so have you, did you get any aspect of that as you were talking to your drivers and the impact of technology, not just for directions or things like that, but getting loads and having visibility of the market? You know, I also talked to like big, like CH Robinson companies like that. I honestly think actually, uh, I think what bears on this, and I, and I hope other people research this, maybe people like yourself, there's currently a federal investigation into whether or not these vast marketplaces that uh, uh, allow landlords to, you know, ad widely advertise apartments constitute a form of, I'm going to misuse the legal term here, it's like uh, conspiracy, uh, 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 but, you know, anti-competitive, where if, if, the, if the landlords can, can see what rents everyone else is charging, then it can allow them to, you know, uh, artificially increase what they're charging and kind of everybody moves in lockstep because these vast online marketplaces make those prices visible. Normally you expect online marketplaces to drive prices down, but in some cases they can actually drive prices up when people are colluding, that's the word I'm looking for, but not even intentionally. Or sometimes the algorithms that power them can create a form of collusion because of the way that they work. And I honestly think that there's such an asymmetry between drivers, to bring it back to trucking, uh -huh. those who are hiring them that, you know, if I am a shipper and I can see I have visibility across the whole country, you know, all of these potential places, um, you know, I am able to really drive down to, you know, the, the lowest possible level, whatever I am going to pay any potential driver and drivers, they have less flexibility, you know, like they've got to pick up their next load wherever it is, right? They don't want to be, you know, dead. Uh, I forget what the term is, but heading deadheading from one spot to another. That's a nightmare for them. So I, I do think that sometimes these marketplaces, these two-sided marketplaces really can drive down prices to the disadvantage of the providers of goods. You also see this on Amazon's marketplace. You so. know, it's, um, I think it depends on the structure of the market. And so one of the things that for truckload trucking, and you raised this point, um, you know, the, the lack of economies of scale, um, and, and because there are lacks of economy, why are there no economies of scale? It's because it's a long tail market, over 200,000 carriers, 96%, um, was it, uh, yeah, 96% of all carriers have less than 20 drivers. So it's huge long tail. 
um, for that. And so, so many players and also with no economies of scale, getting bigger doesn't help. And that's why a lot of the, the company that you profiled is a six to 10 truck. They get squeezed. As soon as you get of, of a certain size, the middle, the market is actually getting hollowed out, but it's not consolidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever you have a market like that, I've been studying this for a while now, there are no price makers. Walmart does not make the price of, of the lane. It just doesn't. Um, they buy a billion dollars. C.H. Robinson, Schneider, Hunt, big sellers and buyers of it, they don't set the market either. It goes the, the curve. You can follow it every three years. We, we do this. So I agree that it can, I, I tend to believe the visibility of a market helps. Get, it, get, it makes it clear. And so the idea that prices are going down now, but if you look from 19, uh, 2020, April, till about March 2022, 20, uh, spot rates were going through the roof. And so the market flipped. So a lot of that benefited the individual driver. That's true. That's true. You're right. You're right. And that, and that is down to the structure of that market. You're right about that. Because if you have fewer players, yeah, because you talk about this railroads, there are only what, six class one railroads right now. Um, and so that consolidation, sure, that can lead to different behavior. But it's, it's funny to see how the trucking market is evolving. Because when I did my dissertation, it was only 10 years after deregulation. And the whole idea of doing competitive bids was this weird and wacky thing. And now it's kind of standard, but now people are kind of going back the other way. But so were you surprised by anything with the, with the trucking? Did, uh, you know, driving along, did anything come out from that? I, I mean, I mean, I, I was surprised that an industry that big, um, which, which asks so much of all of its skilled laborers, is able to continue to exist as it does, because I think trucking is a much more skilled profession than people appreciate. You know, my sort of economics mind was like baffled, like, well, wait, how come truckers can't, you know, demand uh, better working conditions or higher wages, you know? And then, you know, I really learned uh, from academics like yourself, you know, how much turnover there is there. I mean, the industry does do a great job of making sure that it can constantly ingest new drivers. It's a it's a churn though, and you made this point. It's not like they're quit as much quitting the industry. There is some of that, and you see it. It cycles with how the construction agency goes, you know, because a, a lot of these move in, in in parallel. But it's one of the points you raised is that you know the a lot of the time one of the worst challenges that a driver has is when they're not driving, right? It's when they're waiting to be loaded, and that's that's the big travesty in my in my opinion. And then, and that's a, a problem that falls between the cracks. It's not the shipper, it's not the carrier, it's not the receiver. It, none of them have a vested interest in keeping the driver driving, um, and the, and the driver pays the price. There are six million professional drivers in America, and I realize only a fraction of those are driving long haul. Right. I, I continue to be baffled that the, to me, winning political issue of let's just like build more rest stops, and and yeah. make. And, and, you know, and subsidize these and make it easier for, for truck drivers to do their jobs and to sleep at night. I am just shocked that no one has taken up that cause. Yeah, well, it's it, because the costs and the benefits don't align. And so a lot of time, yeah, it's it's a whole nother discussion of that. But the, the parking issue is one of those uh, the things that seems so boring to solve, but would solve so many problems. But the people who would pay for it aren't the ones who would benefit it necessarily. It's, it's an interesting Thing. But I want to ask one more 
line of questioning before I let you go, because I know you're busy writing your next book or getting ready to anyway. Automation. So uh, we've done a lot of work up here, and um, I actually did a drive along on I-5 in San Francisco with one of the auto trucks back, this was five, six years ago before they got sued by Google, right? Um, and it was, it was terrifying uh, to see it, but it actually worked pretty well. You spent some time with the folks from Too Simple. What are your thoughts on this now? They've had some recent news. They had big layoffs like every other tech company. Uh, what are your thoughts on Autonomous now? Any, has it changed? Well, I mean, I, I, too simple in particular is how has problems particular to a, like transfer of possibly illegal transfer of technology to uh, yeah. China, just came which is a national security threat, yeah. uh, which just shows <laughs> you, I think, how valuable this technology is and how it's going to be global one way or the other. Um, but I do think that when you look at the progress of companies like Waymo, who's trying to build a general purpose driver, which can drive a truck as well as it can drive a car, as well as it can drive potentially other types of, you know, last mile delivery vehicles. You know, it, it is slow and steady progress, but it is progress nonetheless. And every part of that that is required to, to enable that safe operation, at least under certain circumstances, like on highways, you know, it just keeps going. It's very difficult to make the call of exactly, you know, when it's going to get deployed, because frankly, to some extent, it just depends on the risk analysis of the companies involved. Autonomous vehicles are going to get in accidents just like humans are. Mm -hmm. It's going to be incumbent on these companies to prove to regulators and to the public that every time that happens, you know, we in the media and in the public shouldn't treat it like it's the end of the world. And and what we've got to do is have this sober analysis of like what's the overall, you know, rate of accidents, et cetera. Um, you know, and look, they're still dealing with inherent limits on their sensor technology. And, and the operation of those vehicles and inclement weather and stuff. So it is just, just like logistics, it turns out that, you know, the tech there ends up being, I don't know, a, a third of the problem. And the right. rest is like, how do you service that fleet? How, you know, how are the humans who are still involved, you know, uh, operating on what portion of it do they take over? How do you build it out so you can even just make money on this? Because you'd think, oh, we pulled the driver from the cab automatically, we're gonna start making money. Now you got all the capital, Costs of all the equipment that goes into that truck. I mean, it's a it's a big gnarly problem. And you know, uh, Elon Musk, I think you know, thinks that he's going to sort of barrel headfirst into solving it. It remains to be seen if that approach is going to work or if he's going to get beaten by the tortoise, which is Waymo, yeah. which is being incredibly deliberate. Also, Volvo, others. Yeah, there's um, it's it's funny because I've been in different workshops and conferences, talked to a lot of people about this. The, a lot of the people say the benefits, you know, what are the benefits for autonomous vehicles? And safety is one of them, but where they plan to be used isn't where most of the accidents happen, right? So it's not really there, but then you talk about, well, it's reduced the number of people involved and you go, nah, not really. Because to your point earlier, whenever you introduce technology, it doesn't necessarily replace, it shifts. And so you got to look how many how many people will be monitoring the robots for this? Stuff? A, one thing I would highlight there is even is that there are ways to use that technology where even if it involves more humans, it opens up the possibilities for new kinds of shipping that could justify Absolutely. its existence. So, for example, if you have a truck that can drive 24 hours straight, mm -hmm. you can then start to displace some of the shipping, which now has to be air freight. Well, guess what? Even if it takes you twice as many people to accomplish that, because air freight costs you 10 times as much, you may have a competitive business model at that point. Absolutely. 
And you raised the point that it, it also reduces the amount of inventory you need in the system because you can reach somewhere in 24 hours from a further distance, right? And so there's been a lot of studies looking at how would my network, my uh, supply chain network look like if this technology were allowed to do something different, uh, autonomous. And that, that's, that's true. So last question, when do you think we're going to see widespread adoption of autonomous trucking? Not, not every truck, every lane, everywhere. Where do you see it happening and when do you think it'll actually tip the needle and it'll be have, have an impact? Well, I think that question is impossible to answer because I think it like a lot of these, tech, uh, there's sort of two sub questions there. One okay. is we can't tell if it'll be rapid adoption the way that technology, like consumer technology happens, or if it's just going to be really slowly adopted as those networks expand. I guess that's probably more likely. It's really, really difficult to say. I mean, I ask that question every time I get to talk to one of these companies and, you know, it, they fall into two camps. Either they're like too simple and Tesla and they're like, oh, it's going to happen really soon. And then you see them sort of publicly screwing up in ways that think like, well, you know, that's they're definitely not ready for it. Or you talk to more uh, careful companies and they're like, well, just stay tuned, you know. So yeah, it, yeah. I, I got to say, this is one of these things that is, I, I'd, I'd feel more comfortable per, uh, predicting when we're going to start having like designer babies than I <laughs> feel comfortable answering this question. It's a really hard one. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's surprising. <laughs> I am. Um, Cause I think it's, it's starting to happen more in my, my prediction, Southeast heavy duty lines, Arizona to Texas, they're going to start happening. And they're because they're more regulatory. And the trials have already started. Oh, they've been trialing them, and Anheuser Bush has been promoting the one they did, the one driverless. Yeah, but I think out of pilot mode would be the nice. That that to me, that's the trigger, and I really haven't seen that. The only autonomous, without a pilot, uh, without a co-driver human in the that I know of is passenger, and that's out of uh, near Phoenix. That it's a Waymo project. That's the only one I know in Chandler. I want to say, but it's not widely discussed everything else I, is yeah, it's, it, this is a funny market where i think that you know usually there's at least a duopoly of tech companies that look like they're going to own it but i honestly think the problem is so hard and requires so much patience that we could end up with just waymo or nothing yeah so it's really down to that one company there's there's still a lot of people out there but the question to me i look at do they have anyone who's ever driven a truck there or there are a lot of people come out with ideas that are, you know, they come from the AI part and they don't think about the the other user interface, but they're still, it's still being shaken out. But anyway, thank you, Christopher. I really enjoyed talking with you. You brought some great insights and I, I highly recommend the book arriving today. And uh, what is the, the next topic you're looking at is what the future of work or do you have a, do you have a title yet? Or are you, is this still oh, a I, I, I wish I had a title. I need, I need a really awesome title. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm really thinking about kind of what is the, what is the spiritual successor to a book like the four hour work week, but is really just about how do, how are we, how do bosses and employees together reconstruct the nature of knowledge work so that people are doing their best work split between home and the workplace. And I think that there's a ton of interesting research on it. And I think that there's a, you know, and tens of millions of Americans and hundreds of millions of people worldwide are, are kind of living those experiments. Yeah. Um, you know, everything from companies going fully remote to companies going hybrid first. 
Right. I mean, even Intel is a hybrid first company, a manufacturing company. Who would have imagined um, to what you're experiencing, you know, in acad academia, which I think is similar to professional services firms, which have frankly been hybrid for decades. It just nobody had that word and wasn't talking about it. Yeah. But for a lot of those companies, like for Intel, not all the pigs are created equal. Not everyone can work. Yeah, if you're manufacturing, you're you're on the plant. But does it, it sounds like is your book planning to be? Are you planning to be prescriptive or descriptive? Because I would call arriving today descriptive. You're describing in great detail with great side stories. But that, that was my favorite part of the whole book. Uh, going to that, or are you going to start prescribing what it should be? I think this is going to be more prescriptive, but it's going to be uh, sort of oriented toward. Here are the prescriptive in the sense that here are the questions you should be asking and here are the goals you should be pushing toward. And here are some ways to do that. But really admitting the fact that like when you're talking about all of knowledge work, I mean, it's such an incredible variety. You can't be a, uh, overly prescriptive. And frankly, yeah. I think books that try to be just end up kind of being useless in that. But I really want to push people to understand that there is this new way. There are these new ways to work that science backs up our sort of innate desire to come together to collaborate and then split apart, whether that means working from yeah. home or having our own space in any given workspace. Like all the research says that's how innovation happens. This is how the best sure. work occurs. Sure. This is how the best sort of work life interdigitation can occur. And once we sort of uh, admit that, then it becomes this project of all of us rebuilding this new world of work together. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. And I bet it differs by generation. I know we've seen that here. Um, they have different perspectives. But anyway, Christopher, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on here. No worries. Everyone, please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Enam Eu. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for February 9th, 2023. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. For dry van, active rates down half a percent, spot rates down 4%, and replacement rates negative 8%. This means the new contract rates are about 8% below the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates down 1%, spot rates down 5%, and replacement rates negative 12%. In a modal, active rates down 1%, spot rates down 5%, and replacement rate is negative 5%. Finally, on the flatbed side, active rates down 1%, spot rates down 9%, and replacement rates negative 1%. All right. So this is the first time I can recall in months where everything went down. I can't think of the last time where every single metric went went down, especially active rates for both van and reefer continue to drop. What do you think is going on? I think the uh, since the way we measure it is re with respect to the, the previous time, the active and the spot rates. So since the blip happened uh, in end of end of December, beginning of January, I think that's where these numbers are coming from. But overall, to your point, overall, we are seeing the rates are continuing to drop. Yeah. And it looks like reefer temp control is dropping a little more as far as replacement rates 
than Drybane. Drybane's still high single digits, and temp control's been low double digits for a little while now. Why do you think that's happening? Seasonality, I think, is is the normally that's where the the reefer diverges from the dry van whenever the seasonal impact takes place. Either whether it's going high, you know higher than uh, at a higher rate or lower rate, that's the only thing I could think of where temp control uh, is dropping faster due to the seasonality. Yeah, and then it sounds like uh, the market's still inverted, right? So spot is still below contract, and it looks like that gap increased a little bit the last two weeks. Yes, yes. I think it went back to what we have, you know, what we saw late last year where it's in the dry van is in the 40 cents, you know, a, a range and then uh, refa is in the 30, 35 cents range. So, yeah, we are back to back to what we have seen before. A significant gap, I think, you know, I mean, for, for spot rates to be that much lower. Yeah. And it sounds like for year over year, the rate of change for a drop in contract for dry van is what a little about 6% and spot rate is five times that it's dropped 34%. So what, what's your best guess, you know, when do you think the market will revert back where spot will come up? Because it looked like January's spot jumps were, didn't sustain. It was just kind of a one-off. When do you think it'll flip back? Yeah. From the data and, and our predictions are that by the, the, third to fourth quarter to turn around. I mean, we were expecting it to turn between first and second quarter, the spot rates to turn. Right. But with everything that we are seeing, uh, it you know, it seems like it's going to be somewhere in the third to fourth quarter, the spot to turn around uh, and then contract to follow four to six months after. And then uh, the good news on the fuel too, it dropped a little bit, about 10 cents a gallon. So what do, you, what do you think? Do you think fuel is going to continue to go down or do you think it'll hover around here? I think based on everything we are seeing, it's hovering around. I mean, there is the geopolitical tensions again, all the whole China thing, Taiwan thing. So all, all those things are hovering around. It could, you know, it could just in, in a, you know, in a blink, we could be in a completely different situation from a fuel perspective. However, I was actually looking at I mean, it was like almost a year ago is when uh, the whole Ukraine thing happened, right? And and, and right. the prices just skyrocketed. So I was looking at the prices at the peak. It was like 580 or so was per gallon uh, to where we sit today. The fuel surcharge difference itself is about 21 cents from the, the peak that we saw, which was like in the March, April time period. Uh, to yeah. what we see today, so it's it's a it's a uh, you know from like seventy seven cents to now it's about fifty six cents on fuel surcharge. Okay, so I guess that concludes this week's truckload market update. Thanks, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Enam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.